0: Okay, so uh, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 22. We as a church, our pattern as a church has always been and usually is to go through books of the Bible. And uh, we, (laughs) I got to tell you, I went back to my notes um, uh, from the last time we were in Luke chapter 21, the last part of Luke chapter 21, and I was a bit shocked (laughs) because it was actually November 2020 that we stopped at that chapter. And I'm like, because we take breaks. It's a big book, right? So... You're in it a long time. People get, oh, it's Luke. No, it's great. But so we've done a bunch of miniseries and a few other books. We did Jonah and a few other things, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at those notes, and, and I actually started reading my introduction. And it was like, just figure this. We're like eight months into COVID at that point. There aren't any vaccines yet. We were back to talking. I was preaching to a camera uh, after a brief opening, I think in August and September of that year, and so I'm reading the notes going, has it ended? Anyway, that's how long it's been. So anyway, we, the timing's great because we're in chapter 22 today, and so it lines up perfectly for us now to be at Good Friday, Easter Sunday in the book of Luke, which was kind of the idea that we wanted to get to anyway, but maybe should have done that last year. So... Uh, This is great. I'm going to read the first 23 verses uh, of this uh, chapter this morning, and uh, I just want to ask you, like, as we're doing this, because we are going to break bread, do communion after this, and this is about the last Passover meal today, but I want to ask you uh, to try as much as possible as I'm reading it. It won't be on screen. I'll just read it, verses 1 to 23. Just allow yourself to enter into the narrative, into the story. And and just picture it, okay? It's the last week of Jesus' life. Actually, it's the day before he's crucified. Luke records. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? Let's pray. Yeah, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this day. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for the inspiration that you gave to Dr. Luke to collect from eyewitness accounts these stories about Jesus and his very words. And Thank you that we can read them today knowing, fully trusting that this is what happened on this day. And so, Lord, as I've asked all of us here today, I ask of you, Lord Jesus, would you be among us in a special way today? Would you earnestly desire to be with us here today like you were with your men on that day? I know that's your desire. So we welcome you. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. (laughs) So um, uh, for those of you who are maybe new to Luke's gospel, or at least um, the story behind it, uh, the, the truth is a little bit of a recap. Uh, Luke uh, never met Jesus personally. Um, He was not one of the apostles. Uh, He was actually a Greek Gentile skeptic who came to faith in Jesus Christ, most likely through the ministry of the apostle Paul, who he traveled with, planting churches. And this is where he's hearing the words of uh, the preachers in that day, the apostles, Paul and some of the other apostles. And uh, he, he gets to this point, and I want to go back, actually, to the first chapter. This will not be on screen, but just as a recap, I just want to put this one point in our mind today before we look at our verses. And it comes from the, it's his purpose for writing the book. And I love it. I really love it. And there's an important point that he makes in these first four verses that help us with today and anytime time we open the Word of God. So in chapter 1, Luke writes... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed to me good also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." And so he, again, he makes it clear here that, look, you, Matthew, uh, Mark, John, for sure, Paul, maybe Peter, have already written some accounts and some stories about Jesus. And, and he feels moved to write this orderly account, but it's interesting. It, 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 well, it, he wants to do an orderly narrative account. I've referred to him in the past. He's Dr. Luke because he was a physician. We know that from Scripture. But kind of like a journalist, right? Right. So, so, what did you hear? And what did you see? And let me write that down, right? And that's how he developed this orderly account. But the amazing thing about the reason why he did it is he had a friend whose name was Theophilus. And we kind of get from the text, it's assumed from the text, that he was in some form of local government. Oh, you know, he, the way that he addresses him, right? Most excellent Theophilus, which is how you would uh, address an official in government in a local place. But it's the words that he says, and these will be on screen with you, that are key. I'm writing this to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, I got to be honest with you, I really like that word in our world and culture today and even in the church, not so much. That's a struggle for people, isn't it? It really is. And so I I wanted to emphasize that again today because again, November 2020 was the last time we were in this book and some of you who were with us in the beginning know that I leaned on that point a lot in the beginning and annoyed some of you. I understand. But now of what's happened in our world since November 2020, I just want to say to you today, truth, truth is more on trial today than it ever has. In fact, there's... What, fake news? What is truth? As Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. So it's a 2,000-year-old problem, right? And so I just want to say to you that, listen, the, the, the bottom line is Luke is like, I want you to have certainty. He used the word. The Holy Spirit inspired him to use it and write it. It's an amazing word. You know what the word means literally in the Greek? Without doubt. Being, possessing an understanding of truth that is without doubt. So he wants Theophilus to have that kind of certainty. And so as I said, it's a loaded word today. I understand. Um, but the reason why it's a loaded word today is, of course, because of the, the Enlightenment and postmodernism and good old philosophers like Voltaire who who birthed the idea that you should question everything. I still remember when our eldest son came home from grade 9 or grade 10 and had some teacher who told him, you should do that. From that day on, he's questioning everything I'm saying. (laughs) Go to bed. Why? I doubt you meant that. So what they did, though, and and what our culture is, we just absorbed it, guys. And we're absorbing it into the life of the church. And that is, is that it's been turned around. Doubt has become a virtue. You know, to be questioning and doubting? You're virtuous. Certainty is a sin. No, it's not. It's not at all. It's, it's what Luke and the Holy Spirit want you and I to actually have. There's actually five times in the New Testament that the word diastazo, which is the Greek for doubt is used. Let me put it to you this way. It's never in a positive context. It is never doing that. You'll all know who's the guy that uh, needed to see the handprints of Jesus and, and, and so forth. And the apostles said to him, no, we saw him this morning. What was the name that he was given? You guys have been to Sunday school. It's great. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. He was no such thing. That's a moniker that was put on him. That's just not true. He wanted exactly what all the other disciples had had, which was visibly seeing Jesus. But when Jesus comes to him seven days later, and I love that fact, Jesus comes back seven days later for one guy so that he would have certainty. And Jesus never uses the word doubt. He says, don't be what? Unbelieving, but believe. Oh, have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who believed but haven't seen me. I mean, it's not, like, it's not like Thomas was saying to the other guys, look, I've got to be honest with you, I, I, I'm, I now have my doubts about this resurrection thing, so you think he rose from the dead? I'm not so sure. I have, no. Bottom line is he actually uses the word, unless I see my own eyes and touch him with my own hands, I will not, what, believe. So I felt that was important to bring that back to you this morning because that's the reason why we do this at the Rock Church, why we open the Bible. It's all I've got, okay? Glenn's advice is mediocre, right? The gospel is true. The word of God is true. The number of things in the scripture that are what they call potentially disputable are very tiny amounts, which means we can have certainty about the vast majority of it, amen? And that's why we do this. So your sermon title for today is The Last Passover. I said this last week, I don't normally have three-point sermons, uh, but today, again, I do. I don't know why. It just, it just happened. So uh, hopefully we're going to see this. You've already heard me read it, the plot, the preparation, and the meal. So we're going to look at the plot and the preparation briefly as it leads into the meal because we'll spend most of our time on that this morning. So we have this, uh, this situation where the chief priests and the scribes, uh, basically at the beginning of chapter 22, they've had enough of Jesus. Right? If you read back into chapter 18 and 19, he's been telling parables, and they're going, hold on, these parables are about us, right? And they're, they're beginning to figure it out that he's just in front of the people. He's basically, he, mocking is maybe, but he's revealing their hypocrisy. Let's put it that way. But they feel they're being mocked, and, and they've had enough. They've had enough. They want him put to death. And so Luke puts that fact together with the timing, which is, the Feast of the Unleavened, this is an amazing timing, it's crazy, because it, on this week, everyone's in Jerusalem, a faithful Jew's in Jerusalem, why? For the Passover. What, this is the greatest celebration in the calendar for the Jewish people. And during this week, what are they expecting to do? Just eat a really good meal and remember the, 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 the Passover? They're expecting the Messiah. If he's going to come, this is when he comes. How ironic, right? Right? He's right there, the Lamb of God. Oh, they want to sacrifice him. It's very ironic. So it's interesting. They're kind of gutless. They fear the people, right? They, they fear the people who are going to turn on them, but also possibly physically. So the plan is they want to find someone who will betray him, who will, you know, away from the crowds, will be able to direct them uh, to Jesus so they can have him arrested and put him on trial and crucify him. That's the bottom line. And, and, and the fact that it could be one of his own disciples, that's a bonus. Because that's going to discredit him too, right? And so, of course, we see um, and read that it literally says that Satan himself entered Judas. So so listen, my suggestion here is is that we talked about this in the Spiritual Warfare series. He's real. He really is real. And um, this is one of the very few times in Scripture where he personally shows up and gets involved. And I'm going to suggest to you the bottom line here is this was really a critical part of the mission. It's basically his last stand, right? And so he's not going to leave this to one of his minions. And he enters, it says, the text... Judas. So Judas goes to the chief priests and scribes. Uh, The plot is cooked up, and then the plan is made that we'll find a way to um, get him arrested away from some crowds. So then we see the preparation. Verses 7 and 8 tell us then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go ahead and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Also to remind us that starting way back in uh, Luke 19, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So I've already alluded to this. This is now only four days later since Palm Sunday. And so this is literally Thursday before Good Friday that these events are starting to happen. And so this is, of course, the day before his crucifixion, the day of unleavened bread. It's a celebration day. Jesus makes preparation for what we call today the Last Supper. Um, However, also the last Passover meal, I want to suggest to you, for Jesus and his disciples. Now, they will, as faithful Jews and now Christians, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them fully, they will continue as part of their tradition to celebrate the Passover Seder. But it will change. The meaning will change dramatically. Many, many years ago, it was I, I think just a few years after I became a Christian, Janice and I were living in Toronto. And a uh, big Jewish population in Toronto, if you're not aware of that. Um, and we lived in the middle of Forest Hills in a little apartment, which was awesome. Um, but we had met some Messianic Jews. So these are Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they realized, no, no, really, he is the Messiah. And they invited us to a Seder. And we were like... You know, first of all, I'm a new Christian. I'm going, is this okay? <laughs> Are we allowed to go do this, right? And, and they, they said to us, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Just relax, okay? So we go to this meal, and it was fantastic. It was, uh, um, but what they revealed is amazing. And Janice, um, I, I, I'm going to say Janice and I, but it's mostly Janice is doing. Uh, we have celebrated Passover Seders with many of you in the Rock Church over the years, and I believe she's got another one planned for Monday, Thursday coming up. And uh, it was incredible because every element in the actual Passover Seder is Jesus. He's in every single element. I don't, you're all nodding as if you knew that. I didn't know that. Well, I do now. It's remarkable. It's so remarkable. So if, if you don't know that and you'd like to get some information on that, talk to me afterwards and we can point you into that uh, and you could learn how to do a Seder for yourself. So back to our text, we read that Jesus on the day before he knows, listen, he knows, I die tomorrow. Now, I, Again, I, I know I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm going fishing. Like, I'm going golfing. I don't know. I'm going to go with my wife somewhere and just hold her for the 20, I don't know. Put on a meal for you guys? Okay, maybe I should, but yeah. He instructs Peter and John to go and prepare a place. This is interesting, right? They, of course, act a little surprised. Why? Well, because Jesus... There's approximately 1.5 million people in Jerusalem. Everything's booked. That's why they're surprised. But he's Jesus, right? And I, I would suggest to you, that's doubt, by the way. That, that would be doubt, the way they behaved. His instructions are pretty simple, though. He says, listen, go into a town, probably go into the city, and, and you're going to find a guy carrying a water jar. So that's a hint, actually. Because, and I know it's, it's, it's not the way it should be today, or it isn't the way it should be at all. Anyways, women who would mostly carry water uh, jars in those days. And so a guy is like going to stand out, right? So right away the apostles are like, oh, okay, we'll look for a guy carrying a water jar because that's not what would normally be So And then Jesus said, now start following him and, and then follow him into the house and then enter into the house and tell the owner of the house, teacher says to you this, where is the guest room? Where am I to eat the Passover with my disciples? So it's, it's like code, right? It's, it's like, we've, this has been prearranged. When you say that, he will show you a large room upstairs in his house and prepare it there. They did, and it was so. So it, it's amazing again to me with Luke, the way he orders this account, right? These are details, but they're very important details that point to truth, point to the, point, the, the reality that we can trust this of what we're reading, what's going on. It's like what C.S. Lewis said many, many years ago when he came out of being an atheist and becoming a Christian, as a, as a man who was one of the most amazing writers of his day, and of course his friend is J.R.R. Tolkien, two amazing guys, who could write fantasy and write all kinds. And he is, as a, as a writer, an author, he would look back at the Gospels and go, hold on, and especially Luke, and you say, hold on, this isn't fantasy. This is historical accounting and reporting. And that is one of the things that tipped him from atheism to Christianity. So this itself right here, I want to suggest, is proving that Jesus had foreknowledge from the Spirit about the plot (laughs) that was in play. He, He knew likely about a year before when he was previously in Jerusalem and he made these arrangements because he knew in advance that there would be this plot against him and he he knew in advance that it would have to be so secretive that Judas wouldn't be there on that night or would be there on that night but wouldn't know where it was because he wanted to earnestly have this meal. And if he hadn't had this meal, we wouldn't be doing this today. So is that important? I love the way Kent R. Hughes, one of my favorite pastor, author, commentator, writers, puts it. He says this, from the outset of this near final event, we see that Jesus was in control of his destiny. He was not caught like a rag doll on the relentless gears of history. He was not done in by some satanic plot. Jesus would accomplish everything he set out to do on his own schedule. Okay, point number three, the Passover meal. Let's have a look at it. Verses 14 and 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, I was thinking about this, and um, I think I'm going to have to do this from now on when we invite people over for dinner, like we did this week and we like doing. Now that the pandemic's ending. it's, I can imagine just you come to someone's house for dinner and, and they literally say to you, you know, we, we have been waiting for so long to have this meal with, with you guys. Like this really, we, we, this, how would you feel? Like besides just like, hey, how you doing? Aunt, you see the Canucks last night? Yeah, we're not going to make the playoffs. Like whatever. No, I really, really, we wanted to be with you. Well, how would you feel? Loved? Yeah. Right? yeah, special for sure, but loved. And I think that's what Jesus wanted to communicate. So Jesus earnestly desired to have this meal with his men, including Judas, right? Including Judas. And so the question is, well, how did Judas get there? Well, obviously John and Peter and Jesus knew where this location was, and the 12 were together and said, okay, follow me. So there was no time for Judas to let the officials know. Planned. It was planned out. So I think for you and I here today, and this is why I ask you sometimes to just imagine these things. I'm not trying to play some mystical game with you, but it's hard for us to imagine the, the weight of that night, that event. Redemptive history, really, is on the table. The fact that we can call ourselves Christians and children of God is in that night. Well, yeah, and what happens the next day and on the Sunday, yes, but that night is so critically important. And also what Jesus says next is also pretty important. He says then to his disciples, for I tell you, I will not eat it, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't mean I won't eat with you tonight, but he won't eat it again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. So he's already laying for them something they haven't grasped yet. He's told them three times, I'm going to suffer and die and be buried. It's going to happen tomorrow. But he's also letting them know that there's going to be a period before he comes again. And everything is fulfilled perfectly. So Jesus began the meal by stating that he would soon suffer and die, and that he planned in advance to eat this last meal undisturbed with them. So it would be literally his last supper. It would be his last supper. And the next occasion for him will be when he eats an incredible meal. And if you are in Christ here today, you're going to be at that table. Can you possibly imagine? I'm pretty sure there's going to be lamb there. So you better start liking it. He's going to be having that second, that meal with his church, with his bride. It's going to be really amazing. He goes on and says, Luke records, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the initial step is the beginning of the Passover meal, traditionally, and should be seen as what Jesus is doing is he's he's taking actually a jar of wine and he's pouring out enough for every one of the disciples or asking them to pour up enough, so they're going to have enough for the Seder. And so here's basically an outline of what it looks like, what would happen. The normal procedure at a Passover meal was to have an opening prayer, which was then followed by the first of four cups of wine. So I want to let you know in advance, if you're going to do your own Seder, juice might be helpful too. <laughs> Just saying, right? So then after that first course, they would typically share the Passover story. They would talk about, remember, this is what God did. He saved us. He told us to sacrifice an animal, take the blood of that animal, animal put it over our doorposts, over the lentils of our doors. And that on that night, he would, if we had done that, that blood would cover us and protect us, and, and he would pass over us, and we would be saved. And they would tell that story to their kids and everyone who's listening, and then they would typically sing a psalm. Psalm 113 would typically be sung, and then a second cup of wine would be enjoyed. After grace, the main course of roast lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs was eaten. And after a further prayer, a third cup was drunk. Then Psalms 114 to 118 are typically sung, And the fourth cup of wine was drunk. So, yes, lots of wine. It's a long meal, okay? Just letting you know. So, now we arrive at literally the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? He's instituting it, what we call communion today. And it would have been done typically over the last two cups that they would drink. And so we read in verse 19 and 20, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so we, we know and understand today that, When he says this is my body, it manifestly means that this bread represents my body. That will be sacrificed for you. That will be given for you. A death that will be on their behalf and in their behalf, in your behalf, on my behalf. Taking upon himself the sins of the world. Your sins my sin, all of them, past, present, today, and future on his body. And of course, the cup of wine symbolizes his blood poured out as a covering, permanent covering for you and for me, instituted on this night. The ultimate sacrifice. He comes into this world knowing that it's during a period where Romans crucified people on a brutal cross, and he willingly walked into that, literally walked into it, carrying his cross, and he bore it all. So as we participate this morning in this meal, may I ask you to remember the scope of this night. I was saying to someone earlier today, I watched uh, the Exiles in Babylon conference this past week, and on Thursday night, good old Francis Chan um, got up and opened the conference with a word and a message, and he has a cup of juice of, I I think, wine, maybe juice, and and a little loaf of bread there, and he does a sermon on the Lord's Supper, and I'm thinking, how am I going to preach mine now? (laughs) Because it was Francis Chan, okay? But uh, what I really appreciated about what he did was just to bring the reverence to what we do, right? So remember that when we go to that today. So there are more details about this meal that Luke doesn't record. Again, it's his orderly account. He's got his reasons, but John records a few others. Number one would have been that when they all entered, Jesus kissed them on the cheek. Rudy's always trying to give me a holy kiss. And I keep saying, Rudy, stop it. I love you, but don't, okay, right? He also washed their feet. Same night. You've ever had your feet washed by another believer in Christ? Have you ever washed someone's feet? Oh, man. It's incredibly moving. Then Jesus says this. On this night, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me, is with me on the table. I got to believe that if you were there or I was there, we would all be going, what? (laughs) Right? I wonder if they all looked around. I think the idea is, is that everyone's hand was probably on the table. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Perfect sovereignty and foreknowledge of God. Then he says, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So he's speaking about his betrayal here, right? That's already been preplanned. Now, look, a few questions, right? Jesus previously had spent a whole night praying to his heavenly father about his apostles. Twelve men. I want you to give me twelve men. I've got some names. You've got some names. Let's, let's affirm them. Judas is one of them. So that's a question. Why, if he knew Judas would betray him, was he chosen to be one of the apostles? Well, if somebody had to betray the Lord, well, I guess the next question would be, why condemn this one man? What about Peter, James, John? What about some of the other guys? Why this guy? Why condemn him? After all, he he simply fulfills God's will (laughs) because the Old Testament tells us that God will... Choose someone from his own friends who will betray him. And so this, is, this brings up a lot of questions for us, but I want to also suggest this to you. It gave him three years of opportunity, like all the others, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to walk with him, to eat with him, to hear the good news of the kingdom. Repeatedly and repeatedly. And so I want to suggest to you, God in his sovereignty had determined this would happen, but it really did not seal his fate when he was chosen as an apostle. He sealed his own fate when he plotted with the chief priests to betray Jesus. And listen, with his hands on the table, one last time being told, I know who you are. To not do it. Sadly, sadly, he did not receive that last offer of forgiveness and he betrayed Jesus. The last verse in our text for today is this, and I'm going to leave you with it before we break bread. Now, <laughs> the hand of he was on the table with me, and, and after that statement, well, there are lots of statements that we'll look at next week that follow on after this, but this one is interesting. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Like, like it's not me, is it you? Like, Like, who could it be? This is the thing about the truth of God's word that I want you to see. This is a detail. It's just a detail. But it tells us something quite remarkable. And that's why Luke records it. And it's something for us to check our hearts with too, isn't it? See the bottom line is is that none of them suspected Judas. None of them ex- suspected any one of them. Like, come on, we, we've we've lived together like in poverty for like three years, following this dude, you know, and we've been loving each other, serving each other, laughing with each other, yeah, poking fun at each other too, which is funny, and and just having a and and f- with Jesus and 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 hearing all this and expecting he is going to renew the kingdom, and like, it's all going to happen, and and we, we love this guy, and we love each other, and then, and then, all of a sudden, they're like, we never knew this guy. It can happen. It can happen. But you walk with someone, you walk with someone, you walk with someone, And then for some reason, one day you just find out they're not exactly who you thought they were. But just let me leave you all with this. This was about Judas. And they were all surprised. Well, for the rest of Luke 22, Jesus is going to point out their own faults too. (laughs) And their failings to trust him and believe in him. And, And to lift themselves up. Which one of us is greater? Oh, that's next week. We're going to break bread. Before we do that, let me pray.